So um, it's been a number of months since I've, I've filled in at 10 a.m., and if you recall, and it's certainly okay if you do not recall, because like I said, it's been about three months, um, I have been presenting a series in Understanding Theology, which works out well to, to be presented here and there because we can work through it slowly. Um, it's not like following a story, like, a, like if I was trying to, if I was preaching to you out of the book of Judges, like I will be at 11 a.m., it'd be very difficult to skip a number of months and, and pick up the story again. Um, but we are continuing on, as I said, in uh, understanding theology, and we are continuing where we left off, obviously, and we're at a part where we're, we're, we're talking about... Um, let me double-check that the Discovering Theology is our title of this part. And part two this morning is Sound Theology Combines Both the Mind and the Heart. One without the other, the mind without the heart, the heart without the mind, leads to a serious uh, defect. Um, they, both, they both must be... Um, utilized. Um, em- emphasis on the intellect alone is, is dangerous. I was wondering who was talking to me. It's my phone. That's that gadget that answers questions for you. I could just ask it. What is sound theology? It'd be interesting to see what it says, huh? I wouldn't necessarily go along with whatever it says. I was going to blame that on someone else, on one of you. You know, okay, who's got their phone out and is playing with it? That was me. I apologize. <laughs> so emphasis on the intellect alone is dangerous, and this is important for us to realize because I think, in my opinion, and it's okay to disagree with me. I think that those of us in the Reformed tradition, that we are very intellectually focused on the word, which is good, but it can be overdone. And we have to be careful not to overdo that, to turn God's word into just an intellectual pursuit, into just a matter of academic um, uh, interest. And we see this, unfortunately, in many um, scholars uh, of the Bible and scholars of theology uh, because they, are, they don't have a relationship with God through Christ. They are basically non-believers who happen to have this as a field of study. And although they have done, many of them have done good work, um, there really is something missing when we think about it, isn't there? Someone that is explaining theology but does not themselves know the triune God of the Bible and does not even believe that there is such a thing. So it is, it is odd. You know, many people uh, comment or ask me, well, why would such people even be interested in, you know, the Bible as a... As a uh, a work, and some of them that I'm familiar with um, started off at one point as believers and then 
um, were not true believers and were convinced that the Bible was just man-made and a collection of myths and fables and maybe some good ethical teaching, and they became atheists, or their atheism actually came to show. And, and some of these uh, have done great harm to the church as far as they can because they become um, great. One of them specifically I'm thinking of has become a great proponent of atheism. So this is an, an issue with uh, the intellect alone. And of course, the intellect is only one part of our personality. And if we approach God in, in a piecemeal fashion, um, something is, is, going to, is missing. And this is not how we are to live our lives, giving God just a part, and then the rest of it is for us or, or wherever else we want to disperse it. <clears throat> the, the problem we see with, with, the, with intellectual stimulus alone is it breeds pride, and we know that that is a great sin, and that's something that we need to guard ourselves from. And, and also, it leads to a, a, a dullness in our, in our faith. Um, if it is just an intellectual pursuit to us, and, and we don't have that emotional vested interest in it, I would say, then it becomes uh, something that we engage in uh, debates over. It becomes something that uh, we like to argue with amongst our friends, and it becomes kind of a, a hobby horse for us and instead of a, a way of life. This also, as you undoubtedly could see and, and uh, from where I'm going, is that this leads to self-righteousness also, which we must really guard against. Because one Christian happens to know more about theology than another Christian does not make that person a better Christian, does not bring them closer to God. They are not in a better relationship with God. I've known men over the years who um, maybe didn't know uh, from an academic viewpoint as much as others, but they had hearts on fire for God, which I would trade if, if I had a choice between the two, that, that's the choice I would want. A heart on fire for God. You know, rather than knowing a lot of stuff and being able to show it off. That is completely wrong. But when we have our intellectual abilities that uh, we put to use in the Lord's behalf, then we build up the church. We build up each other. So that is important, and it's something that we should all strive to do. And that brings me to, you know, this emphasis on the heart alone. And unfortunately, we see this also, um, I would say, maybe even predominantly in the American church. The Western church is very emotionally focused, very heart-focused, to the point where it is overdone. What does Jeremiah tell us about the heart? The heart is desperately wicked. Who could know it? And if, if our faith is all heart-based on what we, as sinners, in need of a Savior, what we feel, then we, we, we can run into trouble here. Now, obviously, as, as Christians, true Christians, 
the Lord has transformed our hearts, our, our desires, our interests. In fact, even our needs are different as Christians than they were prior to our conversion um, into faith in the Lord Jesus. However, we are not perfected in our righteousness in this life. We know that. We know that we continue to be sinners. We continue to need a Savior. It's not a one-and-done thing with the Lord. Uh, We need Him in our life. We need to be repenting of our sins because we sin continually. So our hearts are not completely changed yet. We're given that wonderful beginning in this life that will be finished when we go to be with the Lord or the Lord comes back to us. So this, this heart emphasis can, can lead to an overemphasis on emotions, obviously. How is this problematic? Um, because we are, we are commanded to love one another, right? That, that is, we take that as an emotion, love to, to at least us in our, in our culture, is an, is an emotional response. But when we read God's word, we see that, yes, there is an emotional issue there. There's an emotional component, which is very, very important. However, love is also action. It's something that we do. We are to act in love towards one another. And when we overemphasize human emotions, I would say we run into difficulty in understanding and accepting what the Word of God reveals about the character of God himself. When we overemphasize emotions, we want to focus on those emotions, what we call emotions, but are the characteristics of God, the triune God, that are compatible with with our emotions, right? So we want to focus then on God is love, and then to to the detriment of the idea that God is holy, holy, holy that God is righteous, that God will judge, that God is merciful, but God also has wrath towards sin. All of these are part of God, all of his characteristics. And our human emotions, if we rely entirely on them, can make it difficult for us to, to accept these things. And All of us, I'm sure, have experienced interactions with other believers, maybe even have been in such a church where the focus is on these feel-good emotions. It's entirely about, you know, getting that high when we come to church and and Jesus being my buddy and um, loving everything. And uh, I remember, I recall a discussion with one um, uh, older saint, older than me, which, you know, so he's pretty old, um, where we were talking about this idea, and he was just so focused on God's love. And so, you know, when you're having a discussion that, that centers around ethics, what's, what's the throwdown card? card? You, you eventually, in our culture anyway, you always go to it, right? It's Hitler, 
you know, and, and as much as I hated the idea later that oh, I threw down the Hitler card, um, I asked him, well, how about Hitler? Is, do you think Hit, God loves Hitler, and is Hitler in heaven, or is Hitler judged, and is he, you know, awaiting the lake of fire? And he says, no, God loves everybody. Um, so this guy was sticking by his guns. So that means he's got to love Hitler, and Hitler's in heaven. So the moral of that is don't throw down the Hitler card, I guess. So you pick someone else. For, Linda. Uh, I had actually had a, a friend of mine on Facebook, it's a distant cousin, and she. And this is another thing that I you see a lot too is um, it was about know who you are, be securing your identity in Christ. This is the way it's you know couched, you know, because defend and enemy's going to attack you, whatever. So the whole thing was about affirming the I am's, and of course, when I think of I am, I think of Jesus. I am the light. I am the truth. Whatever. No, it's I am. I am chosen. I am loved. I am, you know, saved. I am righteous. I am. And the whole thing was all this I am, I am. I'm like, the gospel is about Jesus, not about me. And I said, that, that's the whole problem with our culture right now. Everything's about me. And I was like, no, sorry, I can't. <laughs> I can't swallow this, you know. Yes, that's a very good point. And no, you're not, you didn't derail me. And this is Bible study. So if you, if you have questions or comments... Um, you know, I, I would love to have you chime in, so no problem there. I'm just going to repeat what Linda said for um, our, our recording and for the live stream, because uh, we're not set up to pick up voices in the audience that well. But Linda was talking about um, our, our absorption in self, and, and a friend of hers who took the I am statements, and as Linda said, you know, she heard the I am statements, and what, and what Linda thought of is what most of us would think of, Jesus' declaration of I am, that he is identifying as God when he, when he gives the I am. I am the great I am. Um, as, as the Lord spoke from the, the burning bush to Moses in Exodus. So our culture has taken this and turned it around where it's not about the Lord, it's about us. It's about the, 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 the sinner. I am, as Linda's example, I am chosen. I am whatever. And this is a very, that's a very good uh, example that I think that um, you know, makes a very good point along these ways. Because I would say that is tied to emotionalism, that, um, that it's, a, 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 it's pride in oneself, and it's a matter of one's feelings that we have to make ourselves feel better. Now, this is kind of the, the tension in Christianity, is that um, when we c come to Christ, when we realize, realize that we are sinners in need of a Savior, how do we feel good about ourselves? We cannot feel good about ourselves. We realize our true condition. And this is difficult for a lot of people because does this not go against, as Linda pointed out, the trend of our culture? Where we where it started off, I remember as a kid, this book that was out, maybe some of you remember it, You're Okay, I'm Okay. And then it just built from there. And it's like, it's not only just you're okay, I'm okay. It's like, you're okay, but man, I am <laughs> really something, aren't you impressed, sort of thing. So the best theology 
not only do we want to combine all of our all of ourself into it, our intellect, our heart, our spirit, even depending on how we you know we 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 think the the human being has been made by God, and um, we'll most likely get to that in a bit. But the best theology will be shaped on our knees, that it is a prayerful pursuit to know about God. And, and prayer is, I think, would say, is the, the antidote to this dullness and in intellectual pride. Rest assured that the, the secular scholars of theology are not praying men and women, and thus we see, we see pride and we see their their, their blindness in their approach to Scripture. So prayer is the vehicle by which our hearts remain sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is very, very important. He, he is vital in our Christian life. He is vital in our understanding of God's Word. He's vital in every aspect of it. Those of us that preach the Word could not do it apart from the Holy Spirit. I know all my brothers that, that do preach the word depend on prayer heavily, as I do, and as, as we should. And as we should as when we approach our daily Bible reading and um, our, our Bible studies that we're involved in. It should be a prayerful attitude. And what the Holy Spirit does not reveal to us is really not worth knowing. Like when we, when we read God's word, <clears throat> we come to the New Testament. And in the New Testament, we come to the epistles. And in the epistles, we come to Paul's letters. And you realize if you read uh, uh, some background commentary to them or you read um, the, the very early church history, you realize that Paul wrote lots of letters, that we don't have all of the letters why don't we have them? What, you know, when, we, when we come to Corinthians, we find out, well, there's previous letters that existed. So he's talking about things we're not really sure of uh, what he's talking about. But the recipients of the letter know what he's talking about. Well, this is how the Holy Spirit has worked in preserving what God inspired the human author, this, is, this being Paul in this case, uh, to write. The Holy Spirit directs that. What was written previously, our curiosity, you know, uh, makes us wonder, but in God's wisdom, in his eternal decree, um, in his eternal economy of our salvation, his plan for our salvation, it just wasn't necessary. So, we are guided by the Holy Spirit in this. So, the next part, generally speaking... We're going to talk about the different branches of theology just as a matter of interest. When we speak about theology, what do we speak of? Now, I want you to realize that although I'm going to talk about seven, um, that, that, the, that some, some theologians would have different classifications. Some would have less classifications. Some would arrange them differently or even name them differently. It's like any time we categorize something. If you go to an, an expert in any field and ask for categories of their knowledge, you're going to get a different explanation depending on who you're talking to. So, so bear that in mind. Um, if you think I've left something out or, 
or, or what have you. Um, the great Reformed theologian of the early 20th century, Cornelius Van Til, who taught at Princeton, if I remember correctly, and was one of the last great theologians from that school that was once so magnificent in its training of ministers of, the, of God's word, and especially in Reformed theology. Um, Van Til says, systematic theology seeks to offer an ordered presentation of what the Bible teaches about God. Therefore, theology is not to be defined as the science of religion. And this may seem to be like splitting hairs to you, but the difference is important. Um, it's not, theology is not about religion in general. Theology is about God's word, the Bible. <clears throat> I had a, a, a church history professor in seminary by the name of Gerald Bray. And Dr. Bray is, is one of the leading living experts in church history uh, today. The man um, was just scary. He is scary smart. You know, one of these guys that can speak multiple languages, is an expert in many subjects, and is a classical um, a musician on top of it. How do you do all this stuff? I, I have no idea um, how Dr. Bray did it, but did it, he did. What he said which once, which really struck me, was only Christianity has a theology. This was a time in the class when we were talking about the Old Testament, and we were talking about the Jewish influences in the New Testament and in the early church. And so a, uh, a discussion arose as to, um, you know, well, what did the Jews think about? What did the rabbis think about this? This is when he said this that stayed with me, that, that they did not have a theology. They had the law. Their entire focus was on understanding, interpreting the law, and finding ways to comply with it that were workable in their society. And some of the rabbis were extremely strict, and others were extremely loose and found loopholes. And he said that there was no Jewish theology until Christianity came to exist amongst the Jews. And Christianity had a theology. It had a way of explaining God that the Jewish people did not have in their interpretation of the Old Testament. Now, when we think about this, and I'm going to touch on this at 11 a.m., uh, coincidentally, <laughs> um, that is why it, the Old Testament by itself is not completely understandable without the New Testament. If we just have the Old Testament, we are left, like, puzzled and unable to understand. And just as in the New Testament, if we don't have the old, if we just have the new, we're lost. It's like, where is this coming from? I don't understand this. What's the background in this? Why are they talking this way? You know, so that, that's important to realize. We are blessed by God with this faith. And this faith, and I think this is one of the elements of the truth of Christianity is the fact that it alone has a theology, that it alone 
has the ability to explain the things that have been basically unexplainable to all humanity from the time of recorded history, the, over the, the, the millennium that we are familiar with, that has been written down, the things that, that humans have struggled with, these ideas, the great ideas, the great questions that the philosophers, the writers, the poets have thought about for ages and ages are explained in Christianity and they're not explained anywhere else. So the Christian faith as a whole, here this is, this is Cornelius Van Til speaking again, the Christian faith as a whole, as a unit, must be set over against the non-Christian faith as a whole. Piecemeal apologetics is inadequate, especially for our time. Now, now there, I'm breaking in here. I'm breaking in. This isn't Dr. Van Til talking. This is just Ken. Um, this is an issue that we have that we're struggling with, um, but Van Til's going to talk about this, is how do we approach apologetics? There's different ideas. How, how do we defend our faith, so to speak? That's what apologetics means. Not that our faith needs defending but it's to speak in support of it. So there's different ideas amongst the Christians in the church, amongst good Christian scholars, uh, on how we're to do this. And this is Van Til's point, that we, we can't go at it a little bit at a time. He says, continuing, a Christian totality picture requires a Christian view of the methodology of science and philosophy as well as the Christian view of theology. One cannot have a really Christian theology unless one has a really Christian science and philosophy. What's important here, and what Van Til is speaking of, is the integration of our entire intellect into our theology, our Christian faith, and also our apologetics. That we do not fall for the ploy of the argumentative atheists that want to separate God and the Bible into categories. Well, explain to me why you think there's a God, but you cannot use God's word. No, we don't accept that. It is the word of God, thus saith the Lord, and that is what we speak from. We have no control over whether the atheist accepts or rejects that, but we do not fall for the atheist's ploy. This is playing the atheist game. And this is not, this is not, <clears throat> I want to clarify, because what my statement could be misinterpreted from what I truly mean. Sharing our faith is not an argument. Sharing our faith is not a debate. We are called to present our faith to others. It is the work of God and the Holy Spirit to open their hearts and their minds to what we say. It matters not whether we walk away from a discussion or an argument or a debate and think, wow, I really smoked them. Or walk away and think, man, I did a lousy job. I... <laughs> I botched that up. I should have said this. I should have said that. The latter one is me. That's me in most discussions afterwards. Ah, the next day, after I wake up, 
you know, ah, I should have said this. That's not important. God works through us in what we present. Do not have this anxiety over, will I know what to say? Will I say the right thing? Just say what you know God's word says, you know, from your heart, but also from your mind together. So I think it's, it's, it's good to see that, you know, that Van Til is saying, we have to look at science, we have to look at philosophy from a Christian perspective. We have to have a Christian view of that. We do not separate these categories. It's not like, well, this is theology, and this is hard science, and this is biology, and so on and so forth, and that, 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 that they never overlap. Certainly they overlap. How can it be otherwise if, if God is, as we believe, and as the word tells us, if God is the creator of all, if he is sovereign over everything, then every field of intellectual endeavor belongs to the Lord God, does it not? And in everything we do, we should be focused on how God is working in this. And once you do this, and I know many of you do do this, have done this, doesn't it just change everything? Don't you see? We see God in everything when we do that. We don't try to put him in a corner, in a box, so to speak. So the first part of um, this first branch of theology is revelation. Not the book of Revelation. However, there are some Christian churches, denominations that are not denominations, where that is, the book of Revelation is a, the major branch of theology. Right? They're just focused on eschatology. So, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the doctrine of Revelation, which comes from the Greek word, as many of you know, meaning unveiling. It means to unveil that which is hidden. Revelation deals with the way God reveals himself. God has revealed himself in the Bible through the Holy Spirit, inspiring human authors to write what they have written and what has been preserved and what the church has collected and put together. Now, this is a whole topic in and of itself, the, the, the canonization of Scripture. How did the Bible come to be? And I, I, I can't spend too much time on it, but I just want to comment, in case you're unsure, that a man did not determine what is in our Bible. Our Bible, I reached for it, wasn't there. We don't, man did not determine this. God determined it. Man recognized it. In the very early councils of the early church, which were Christian. They were not Roman Catholic. They were Christian. The Roman Catholic Church has tried to take all of this and claim it as their own. No, we claim it also. We are Christians. These were our forebearers, these ancient men who preached the word, who guided the churches, gathered together. And what did they find? They found that these scrolls that had been circulated amongst Christians, these letters that had been sent by apostles, 
that the churches throughout the Hellenistic world, where Christianity was having such an impact, the churches were using the same, we would call them books, the same letters, without communicating to one another. And this is something that didn't happen in one meeting. It didn't happen overnight. This took a matter of several years and several councils where they determined what, what does God want us to use as his scripture. He obviously has opened up the canon again. The Old Testament had been closed 400 years before the birth of our Lord. But now the Lord has opened it back up. And there were many, many Gospels that were circulating. We have four. Four have been recognized as divinely inspired. And like I said, this is an entirely different class, and I'm going on a rabbit trail, and I'm going to stop right there because I'll never, I'll never step another foot in, uh, forward in the um, seven minutes that, w- that we have left. Um, so God has revealed himself in the Bible. And the Bible is from God. That's, that's my point. It's not from men. And our, our culture wants to push that down your throat, that this is a man-made book. It is not a man-made book. Just listen to, to the preaching that we do here. Pastor Steve, Pastor Mike, myself, and how, how this, this book that, that, that's written over 1,500 years by 60 or more men from different places on the globe, how does it all tie together the way that it does? Who could have sat down in a secret meeting and just pulled in all these manuscripts and say, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to make this work. Take this one, this one, this one, this one, and there's a thread, a scarlet thread of salvation that runs through it all. It's, come on, it's humanly impossible for that to be done. And we, we know that. And, it's, and it is sad, it, it, is, it is heartbreaking, and it, and it brings grief to me that there are people that are blind to this, that refuse to, to, to see this. So there's a sense in which we can use the term revelation in Scripture interchangeably, because Scripture is revelation. Without revelation, we would not have Scripture, the Bible. We know that the Bible is the word of God, as John Calvin says, by the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? I want to explain that. Um, Because otherwise, you can get this very Mormon sense of, wow, I read it and I just get this, uh, this warm glow in my bosom, which is how Mormons have described to me how they know the Book of Mormon is good. Well, just just read it, friend, and, and you will have this warmth in, in your bosom. That's not what Calvin is talking about here. The inner testimony of the Holy Spirit is what I, what I talked about just a few uh, seconds prior was how it all works together, that it is humanly impossible for these various authors over such a great span of time to bring this all together, for it to be brought together Um, things that were written independently of one another and make them work. This is the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit when we see that, when we recognize that. 
So the doctrine of the Trinity emerges under this heading um, of revelation as well as you know, providence, God's plan, God's acting in human history. We see this in Revelation. And we see, don't we, that Revelation, God's revealing, is progressive. Now, many of us, including me, shy away from that word progressive because uh, this, this has bad connotations in our time. You know, progressivism means, you know, basically rejection of God's word. But not, I'm using it in, in the actual dictionary term of not a political social movement, but how things and <laughs> evolve. I don't like using that word either. But how they progress. Okay, I'm kind of stuck here with a limited vocabulary, so you know what I mean. So God reveals in steps from limited to fuller. In other words, we see in the Old Testament, we see certain things that are just glimmers, don't we? That aren't fully explained. If you just read Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, and you're looking to find out what is the afterlife, what happens after this life, it's, it's, it's rather unclear. It, it's, it varies. There's, there's different ideas that pop up. Obviously, this wasn't firmly revealed at the time of those writings, by God. We see elements that, are, um, that seem very much like the, the, uh, the ideas of the other ancient Near East cultures, where ancient Near East cultures seem to share the same idea of the afterlife. But then we see glimmers, don't we? Especially... Um, uh, David writing in the Psalms, we, in the, the, the books of, of what we call wisdom, um, the book of Job, we see these marvelous glimmers of resurrection, of eternal salvation, of life eternal with God, compared to other descriptions in the Old Testament of going down to the grave or to Sheol, being covered with a blanket of worms, not knowing anything anymore, being forgotten by all, then God reveals to us something completely different through the ministry of God the Son, Jesus Christ, and then the New Testament scriptures, doesn't he? That there is a marvelous life everlasting uh, to come. So Revelation, we, should, we can also think of it as um, what you might say is organic. And by that I mean everything in Revelation, in God's word, is connected to everything else. This is the problem with piecemeal apologetics. Is it, it's uh, an attempt to disconnect. Okay, I'm going to do one more and then, we're, then we'll break. Um, this is one, two. Okay, so after, when we break, realize we may not talk about this for three more months. So I need you to, I need you to remember all this. <laughs> of course, I could just teach it again, and you know, some of you may not realize it, but there'll be someone that'll remember. They'll say, Ken, you're cheating. You've already taught that. Okay, the, the second one is cosmology. This sounds like science, doesn't it? 
cosmologists. Those are, those are the people that study what happens in space and stuff like that. Well, this comes from the Greek word cosmos. meaning world, basically meaning all of creation, and logos. We're familiar with logos, aren't we? So it's a word about the world and creation. And it deals with this question, where did we come from? This is the, the first of the three big questions that philosophers have posed over the centuries. This is the first of the big ideas that, that, that great writers and great poets have wrestled with. You know, the, the great conversation, as it's called, that has gone on in the Western world begins with, where did we come from? What is our origin. We must know that first to know the next. Why are we here? And we must know these things to understand the ultimate. Where are we going? What is after this? If we come from nothing, if we're an accident, then there's no reason for us being here. And where do we go? We go back to nothingness. There's nothing ahead of us. If that was the case, then as Paul says, quoting from the, the, the Greek pagan philosophers as he's preaching and teaching the Greeks Christianity, if that is the case, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So get all you can in this life, because when it's over, that's it, buddy. You're just going into the ground. If that's the case, then there are no ethics. There are no morals. There is no reason to live a, what everyone would call, quote-unquote, a good life. No, you just live the life of a barbarian. You take what you want, and you deal with, violently, if you must, any person that tries to stop you or take your stuff. But is this the way most of the world has lived as far as we know in recorded history? Yes, some, some have, undoubtedly. But no, no we don't because that is not the truth, right? That, th that we do come from a creator God who has made us. There is a reason for us being here and there is a destination we're going to after this life is done. So every atheist who talks about, I just want to be a good person. Why do you want to be a good person? Because they know in their hearts that there is a God. And they must live their lives. They are called to live their lives. They are compelled to live their lives as if there was a God whom they deny. So also, cosmology, getting back to the breakdown in uh, theology. Cosmology also deals with environmental issues. Theology does speak about the environment. We are caretakers of the environment. We are given, we read in the creation accounts in Genesis, we are given dominion 
over the world. Not to, not to subject it, so to speak. Not to, not to rape it, as, the, as, the, as, the, as the, the extreme environmentalists would say. They'd want to exterminate humanity because they see humanity as a parasite upon the, the wonderful, you know, Gaia, the, the mother goddess Earth. Religion, faith, always, always shows up in this. And it does in environmentalism. So we are taught in God's word about caring for the world. It is important. Caring for the environment. Caring for animals. Taking care of this domain that God has given us. Okay, so with that, I am going to uh, break. Um, and we'll pick it up. Who knows when. Um, but I hope that you found this enjoyable and just a reminder, you know, like Linda, you know, if you have things to share when I'm teaching and when Pastor Steve's teaching or, or Pastor Mike at the 10 a.m. hour, that's entirely appropriate. We, we, we enjoy the interaction. So um, that being said, please join me in prayer and we'll have a 10-minute break before the 11 a.m. service. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for... Um, your, for your word, Father, for the theology that you've given us, how amazing it is. We give thanks for the, all the people you've inspired that have come before us and, and that are living now and will come after us that, um, that, that, that talk and write and teach about your word, Father. And, and we, we profit from this, Father. Just, I ask that you direct through the, the Holy Spirit, you direct our hearts, you direct our minds to good, solid theology, good solid writings, Father, that, that we not be led astray by the, the false things that are out there, Father. And, and this, Father, also the internet. Guard us when we go on the internet um, and try to learn about theology, uh, Father, that, that we know that this could be a dangerous, dicey thing, Father, and, and help us to, to equip one another, Father, as iron sharpens iron. Help, help us to, to teach one another, to, to um, uh, lead each other in the path of righteousness that you would have us take when it comes to your word, Father. Um, we give thanks. We, 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 we ask for your blessings upon our continued service today, and we, we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.